Welcome to the Arts Report. It's 3 after 5, Wednesday, October 9th on CITR 101.9. Megan, and you are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9, or you may be listening at CITR.ca. I don't know. I didn't tell you what to do. I'm not your dad. Today on the show, we are going to be hitting some VIF reviews hard and fast from Jonathan and Rohit Arts Reporters here at the station. We are going to talk a little bit about the Rocky Horror Picture Show by Fighting Chance Productions down at the Jericho Arts Center. And we are going to be concluding uh, with our last half hour with Chris Algestrand's Social Anxiety Hour, which is happening next week, October 16th, at the Anza Club. So um, we're going to talk to him a little bit about his social anxieties. We're going to hear a little music, and I'm going to ask him how to pronounce his last name. Uh, which is something that I forgot to do earlier. Um, (laughs) I don't get paid, so uh, I just don't hold myself to professional standards. That's not true. I'm mad professional, you guys. Right, Jonathan and Rohit? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I carry my own uh, crew so that I can get back up on things like that. (laughs) Validation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Welcome back to the Arts Report, Rohit, and welcome for the very first time, Jonathan. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, you are uh, you. You spend a lot of time in the music department. Yes. So yes. you're you're coming on over to arts. Mm. <laughs> I think a move might be happening very soon. Yeah, it's so fun over here. Um, no, we all work together. It's all good. Yeah, big family. Um, now, Jonathan, you saw a bunch of things. Um, at the VIF with our wonderful sponsor passes because we are very happy sponsors of the Vancouver International Film Festival, as always. And um, you saw a few films. Mm, and yes. um, if people want to go to citr.ca right this second, if you scroll down a little bit, or if you go to our Facebook, which is facebook.com slash artsreport, where I post many pictures of my adventures throughout arts in Vancouver, um, there's a review. There's a review you did of You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, uh, which is, seems like a pretty amazing French film um, by director, and you're going to pronounce the name for me? I believe it's Alain René, but there are so many different pronunciations of his last name. That I like that one. I think that sounds to, great. That one, says, that one has a bit of sass. So um, that sassy director's film, You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, so you can read that. It's a l- really lovely review talking about how he expresses art and the interaction and the effect of art. Um, on viewers and participants. Um, so that's a really good one. That one is done for the year, but I'm sure we'll see it many, many places. And I wanted to just, uh, there's one film that you saw that you liked called Blue is the Warmest Color. And I want to start with that because that is playing tomorrow, um, sorry, Friday night. No, tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. What year and day is it today? It is October what year 9th. And day is it today? 2013. I, sh- I should know there are only rush tickets left for that. We're showing. in Vancouver. Okay. So y- if you're interested in seeing it, you'll have to show up okay. quite early. Tomorrow at 8.30 at the Playhouse, uh, blue is the warmest color. And um, let's just spend a, a minute or two of that. Um, this is also part of the spotlight on France. And um, the director, Abdelatif Keshish. I believe sure. he's quite well known in France. Okay, good to know. Um, I'm not a big, I'm not big up on my French film, but mm-hmm. do you do you have a few words to say about this? Because I've I've heard great things. There's been a lot of press. Oh, there's been yeah. The film is, I, I think, critical acclaim would be a good term for it. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and uh, it's for the length. It's a three hour long film. It's an incredibly brisk watch. It's absorbing and affecting without being sappy or. Uh, overblown uh and it's a real good depiction of desire as well although there are some critical problems one could take with that uh, okay w- it's a because the telegraph is calling it an explosion of pleasure sadness <laughs> anger lust and hope well, well one of the one of the controversies surrounding the film is that there are quite a number of extremely lengthy and uh, graphic sex scenes in it that depict uh, sex, the the sex that a woman has from the ages she is uh, 
I believe starting at 15 to about 25. That's mm-hmm. how much she ages throughout the film. And uh, the actresses themselves expressed a bit of unease with the amount of effort they were expected to put in with their performances in these scenarios after the film was released. And it still hasn't completely... It'll probably follow the film for as long as it Mm -hmm. remains in the public consciousness. Well, that's the kind of controversy that should be looked at closely, but won't be. It'll just probably build interest for the film. And I don't want to stereotype anyone, but those French male directors. I think it's fair to say, (laughs) and that's what I was going to say. Building the... He's adding to the stereotype. as As a depiction of desire, it's never like... It's very obviously a film about two queer individuals, mm-hmm. which was directed by someone who is not queer. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of like shots of women in the film and women having sex in the film, which is it seems to be filmed from a perspective from the perspective of a male. And I heard it's it's the story. The film is based on a French graphic novel as well. And the author of that is a queer woman, mm-hmm. and she expressed uh, dissatisfaction with how he handled the sex scenes in the film as I, well. You so, know, it's kind of yeah. like when they say, like, lesbian um, pornography. Um, yeah. It's, just, it's two straight women and it's directed mm-hmm. by a straight man. You know, it's not actually depicting um, necessarily an authentic queer experience. So that's very good points. But but you said it artistically. It's just that th- there's, a, there's an identity politics mm-hmm. there that's worrisome. There is, but I think artistically the film is trying to remove itself from mm-hmm. any sort of political standing and like just express the pure... I mean, Roger Ebert yeah. had this ridiculous quote. I think it's from his review of Black Dynamite where he, lama- he laments... <laughs> Very different movie. He la- <laughs> Very. Is it? Is it, Rohit? <laughs> he <laughs> laments <about> nostalgically <laughs> about like the 80s because back then there didn't need to be a reason for a woman to take her shirt off. Like everyone just... This is his writing that mm. everyone agreed that it was just a good thing for Every you know, time I hear it, like the funny but, thing is every other thing I hear about Roger Ebert makes him either my hero or like I hate him but it just yeah, back and forth. Th- this is a bit of this is a bit tangential, but Ebert does have a history among his readers of being a bit more lenient on a film if there's like Titties. ample yeah. <laughs> if, if there's something for the eyes. Straight but, up. Uh, yeah, I I think the director, even though he doesn't quite succeed obviously, he's aware of the problems of that and mm-hmm. when he ex like what he's trying to express mm-hmm. is that the human body is in and of itself something which is aesthetically beautiful mm-hmm. but especially you know, when it's two ladies yeah, yeah yeah especially that's the that's but the problem problem right that's, yeah well that's really interesting okay so okay so blue is the warmest color that's uh tomorrow rush tickets available um uh problematic problematic sex okay good to know um now, but there are there are two other films, and they're, and they're also both dumb, but they're definitely worth talking about, especially because um, uh, the Canadian aspect. Uh, let's start with that. Um, Vic and Flo saw a bear. Yes, Vic and Flo saw a bear. That's um, another French film or a Quebecois film. Is yeah, it's Canadian, yeah. Quebecois, um, and the director is Denis Cote. I I am. Uh, Apologize again for the pronunciation. Uh, I would doubly apologize life. myself because that's how I pronounce it, and I was there for his Q and A, and I don't even recall how he said it. But but so, so you were there for the Q and A, so you get you have a little mm, bit of an mm. insight. So um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about the experience of seeing the film, and then maybe give us uh, give us the insider uh, scoop on the Q and A? Yeah, Q&A? sure. Uh, so I believe it is his seventh full length picture. He is uh, somewhat famous in Quebec for his experimental films, which have gotten worldwide recognition, and I believe it is his first film where he is where he is written for women, actually. Mm-hmm. And the film is also about uh, two lesbians. It's about a pair of lesbian ex-convicts who met in the same prison, and one of them is released because uh, she, she serves her full time. That is Flo. The other one is Vic, and she had a life sentence. You never actually find out what she received her life sentence for but she uh, is released on parole and she decide the two of them decide to settle in the sort of a quiet extremely quiet backwoods quebec uh like just uh yeah back backwoods quebec mm-hmm. uh, would be the r- extremely rural extremely countryside and it's basically dealing with their fought i don't want to say falling out because the film is very it's it, it actually plays with this quite a bit. It, it's very lax and sort of slow mm-hmm. until the ending. Languid. Yeah. 
that would be a good word for it until the ending which is meant which is meant to be entirely explosive and Mm. i don't really want to spoil okay but when people talk about the film they'll talk about how it's a crossover between like indie comedy drama and uh like like french extremity style film and that's about all i'm gonna say about it because if i talk to any more about how that comes into the film i'd probably Mm -hmm. be spoiling it but uh that's yeah so it's basically about this couple and how flo doesn't really want to settle down in the quebec backwoods and like their dealings with neighbors and their relationship with a with the vix parole officer who they become quite close with and yeah uh did you so did you so we're just we just talked about a film that shows mm -hmm. like the erotic side of a lesbian relationship or a queer relationship and the problems it has. Did you feel any of that um, in this work as well? And and did they touch on those kind of issues like um, not knowing anything about the director, whether he's queer or not? Is is that something that you talk, they talked about in the Q&A? Did you notice any of those issues in this film? It wasn't brought up during the Q&A, and I think in the film itself it's never really like their erotic relationship isn't explored like they'll talk about it but it's Mm -hmm. never shown viscerally or like that the image on the vif page of them both sitting nude on the bed is about the most and it's not even it's not it's not meant to be an erotic image even it's just yeah so yeah it's it's just very it's about their domestic lifestyle and Mm -hmm. yeah and not really it doesn't really go deep into the their sexuality as a couple Mm -hmm. which is kind of funny sometimes you sometimes that's you feel like a film or a a piece of art or something is ignoring that but you know you see plenty of plenty of uh depictions of heterosexual relationships and Mm -hmm. they don't you just you make assumptions that they have a sex life and what it's like and you know you don't it doesn't always have to be a tell-all right Mm -hmm, for it to be to be authentic so that's that's good that wasn't the same kind of issues um and and the the final film that you you saw that you quite enjoyed was uh la ultima pellicula yeah did you you want me to talk about the q a a bit oh yeah absolutely sorry yeah Uh, we okay yeah no no yeah please do uh one interesting thing he did say which i think will be amusing for canadian film fans (laughs) is he talked about how he thought his film or how he thought that it was time we went past a cinema of nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the film's biggest flaw, is that it doesn't necessarily get past the meandering, anomic quality of, like, the, the Vic and Flo searching for where they belong. Or Now, just to clarify in terms of now, uh, and what I get out of the, the term cinema of nothing, because that's a new mm-hmm. term to me, it's very... Yes. I'm going to... I'm gonna keep that up there. Um, I pointed at my head mm. when I said that. Um, is that <laughs> it's radio? Uh, is that the the idea of the the wilderness and like what it there, shows about what it is to be Canadian? And so there's a lot of wilderness and there's that, a lot that's of that's a definite part of it. Walking and there's quiet I, music. I took I took a I'm taking a Canadian film studies course. Uh-huh. Right now. Okay, so, so what is unique, the uh, I'm in a yes. unique position to answer this, yes. but awesome. it's still conjecture. Okay. Because Essentially, there's what you've mentioned. There's also the sense that Canada doesn't really have a place in the world it stage. It doesn't exist. So that, you know, <laughs> Canadians, what they suffer from is a lack of identity mm-hmm. or a lack of being, a lack of place. And that's what the film has a lot of, too. It just, you know, just of those idle moments where it seems like, what do I really do right now? Mm-hmm. I just have one objection to that, though. Yeah. Because, like... The idea that Canadians don't have this uh, clear identity, clear place in the world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but Canadians differ so much from region to region. And each region feels like, I, I would conjecture, that each region has their own version of, of uh, an identity That's... and role. Like, you, you compare Maritimers to West Coasters, and they're going to be completely different in their culture and mannerisms and and just the lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's at least... But my, my point. I think that actually doesn't, that's actually a really good point, and it doesn't necessarily counter because the idea of Canada as a nation versus Canada as a collection of regions. And I think mm. the, that tension is something you see. And I would also say that, I mean, a lot of people identify Canadian film with documentary. Mm-hmm, yes. And it, mm-hmm. the cinema of nothing, I think you very much come in mm. when the people are trying to make like from independent the, from film. From the documentary verite yeah. style. Yeah, because we kill it. Like, yeah. I think Canadian documentaries are almost across the board amazing if they have enough money put into them um 
So, yeah, and so was there, so going uh, back to the Q&A. J- just to briefly touch on your point, though, mm-hmm. uh, well, one of the things which is definitely explored in the film of the in the context of Canada being a very regional place, a very yeah, provincial yeah. place, is that flow, cert- like, out in this, like, with their conception of the wilderness, they still feel, that's why they feel like they don't really have a place to mm. belong. Like, it's always, okay. if you're a Newfoundlander, you have to move to Ontario to get work. Like that old sort of narrative, mm-hmm. so I think that's something that's carried over in this film. Uh, aside from that, that's about all I have. the The ending is, uh, and well, like I said, this will be slightly spoilerish, but spoiler it, the, alert. The, ending, the ending is somewhat violent and uh, disturbing because of the the underlying tension, which is which is meant, I guess, to make the meandering sequences more enjoyable. That. The suspense, mm-hmm. the knowledge that something terrible is inevitably going to happen. The but, foreboding yeah. versus the yeah. nothing actually mm-hmm. happening that moment, that tension. I don't think the film completely succeeds in that aspect, okay. but it's definitely worth checking out because it is so unique Like mm-hmm. in combining those two genres. Excellent. And was there anything you wanted to say about um, uh, La Ultima Pelicula? That is... Uh, now, it, it notes it's, the nation's yeah. multi, uh, Denmark, Canada, Mexico, Philippines. Mm-hmm. The directors are, uh, one of them also had a Q&A. Uh, that was Mark Perenson, and Raya Martin is Filipino. He was the other co-director. And the film is basically a remix, a sort of reimagining of Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie, which uh, is about, I believe, a horse wrangler in Peru oh, okay. who works as a stuntman. I know and, this one. Yeah. And he retires from that line of work, and later he goes on to discover that these uh, Peruvian natives or locals, I'm not sure how urban they are, but they're filming their own movies with, like, they for them, they can't extricate what's happening. When they see a movie, they can't extricate what is happening in the movie to the idea of their actually that actually being shot. Like, for them, it's just... There's no. It's. I haven't seen the film myself, so mm-hmm. I'm describing it secondhand. But the film itself, that uh, the last movie is extremely experimental. It's disjointed. It like that movie itself tries to blur the line between what is being filmed and what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this film does so as well, except it's a great deal more self-conscious. So it's it's a comedy film because part of it is when it's blurring the line between what is actually being filmed and what is actually like what is what the film is what the film is trying to depict as like let's say a documentary presentation of what is being filmed mm-hmm. versus the end product those also begin to melt together and it's trying i'd say for an intentional incompetence so that the film oh, is kind of destructive in that sense because it's so much of it is so much of it is improvisational experimentation so if that kind of stuff bothers you that just off the cuff Let's see what happens now. Yeah. This won't be the film for you. But like I said, it is quite funny, and that goes throughout the entire film. It's also filmed with about uh, 10 different cameras were used. Wow. Yeah. Uh, from Super 8, uh, HD, uh, iPhone. I don't know a lot about cameras, but yeah. The the other thing that I think, I mean, maybe it's just me. It seems like this has been a trend over the past five or ten years, but like maybe five is I think with, it just follows that trend of of, of the way that we interact with media, you know, like. We are making what we're doing at the almost immediate moment, mm-hmm. making a, a document of what we're doing at the exact mm-hmm. moment that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I myself, even since getting an iPhone like six mm-hmm. months ago, because yeah. I'm behind, because I'm not an early adapter at all. Oh, I was there um, right with you actually. Um, the I have noticed distinct changes in how I interact with things, and because I do arts promotion, it's like, well, of course I should be like tweeting and Instagramming, and that's what people want me to do. That's why they're giving me tickets. Essentially, like we can all talk about reviewing and stuff, and that's great. But essentially, you're, there's this relationship that's going on, right? But I have very much noticed a distinct solidification of how I'm dealing with that, and. So these, I notice a lot of films lately with this crossover, like you're talking about, or this this kind of where the the, the line between the finished product and the process, um, and I think that's just reflective of of how we we deal with media mm. and, and art these days. Um, Jonathan, I know you have to get going. Thank you so right. much. I Thanks think that was a, a really oh. a really great uh, first crack and um, just some really great points. Um, and please come back anytime because you know that Canadian 
film studies to you know oh, class absolutely. is going to come in that, handy a lot <laughs> that 200 level course which yes. i'm taking idly <laughs> amusement mainly oh thank right. you so much thank you guys for having me take care man yeah. And now, Rohit, uh, you have a couple of uh, notes for us as well on um, films that you saw. Now, you saw Neurons to Nirvana. Yep. So le- and uh, one other as well. So let's let's start with that. Yep. Um, and and tell me a little bit. Um, so this is actually played its last today, and then the Kill Team as well, which is also done. Um, I think it just showcases the variety too of of some of the things that are there at the festival. We've got about. Um, we kind of spent too long on that, but, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, Neurons to Nirvana, which, uh, was the world premiere at VIF and it's a Canadian film, uh, yeah. directed by Oliver Hockenhall. Yes, you got it. <laughs> yeah. Essentially Neurons to Nirvana is trying to open the doors of the conversation regarding, psychedelic uh, drugs and more so making psychedelic drugs that are considered illicit uh, to be now considered as having medicinal value. Mm -hmm. So the whole film uh, is, uh, that's the whole documentary's purpose is to examine each particular illicit drug. It goes through, for example, LSD, Mm -hmm. uh, mushrooms, uh, ayahuasca, which is something that is very exotic to to many of us and you may not have even heard of uh that's the one i've heard about where you people have actually um said uh like have noted shared hallucinations and stuff like they think it's something that actually does unlock another level of consciousness oh there's some there's some crazy stuff being discussed with Mm -hmm. uh, ayahuasca and uh and of course it also goes through um uh, drugs that are more commonly you know noted in society such as marijuana and mdma so i'll use uh, i'll use like lsd for an example it'll uh the film will present uh, what it would typically do is it's most of the film is talking heads this is mm-hmm. a problem but also let's face it when it's a film about trying to make science uh in a more layman's terms they have to get these experts doctors mm-hmm. uh to explain and do a lot of talking so to to capture the viewers' attentions, uh, they have psychedelic imagery and visualizations and stuff like that in the background while these people are talking, <laughs> which is kind of it's kind of a contradiction in a sense. That kind of sounds like annoying for people who are on drugs and not on drugs. <laughs> it's like yeah, either, on one either hand, way, you want to pay attention to what they're saying, and on the other hand, you're being distracted by this trippy imagery, but or vice versa, or vice versa, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but. As I was trying my best to listen to what they were saying, uh, I'm, u- I'm going to use uh, LSD as the first example. They would break down a drug uh, and talk about, you know, the taboo the drug has and why that taboo might have come about and uh, what are the medicinal studies, a uh, research that has shown medicinal value towards these drugs. And... Uh, for example, LSD apparently has um, been known to help cure alcoholism. Yeah, that's that was my understanding that originally um, uh, that it was developed uh, alcoholism and, and other forms of addiction because of the um, basically shift. Some people say that, for example, depression or alcoholism mm-hmm. are like because it's connected. Uh, it's like a a spiral that you kind of get into yeah. that starts chemically, but yeah. So, oh, sorry, continue. But yeah, it's a really fascinating thing, and it's coming back into vogue, which is probably why this movie is so interesting. Yeah, and um, it it just base it'll keep bre- the the film breaks down each drug, and and that's the format it takes is it gets these experts who go through the history of the drug, when it got introduced to society, and uh, the consequences of it. And one of the big take home points of the film is that it's not trying to be conspiracy theorists about this, but it, uh, all these illicit drugs. Uh, like MDMA and mushrooms and LSD, uh, illicit psychedelics, they actually are not patented. And this apparently has a big, uh, is a big deal because big pharma cannot mm-hmm. make money off these uh, drugs. They if, hate that. And that's, and that is exactly it. And that's why the film, uh, the film, film's uh, experts that they've gathered, the expert panel believe that big pharma has almost made it their mission to, uh, you know, antagonize these drugs, vi- mm-hmm. vilify them because you can't really profit off it. Even 
even though drugs like these have been shown, MDMA, for example, has been uh, proven to help with PTSD, mm-hmm. uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. It's so. been used in uh, therapies for like marital ther- marital therapy too, is instead of like taking um, Xanax or something. So it just shows the sheer variety of things, given the right context. The, yeah. the film medical context. Uh, does, and the filmmaker makes sure that, you know, the, mes- the take-home message along with this, you know, potential benefits of psychedelic drugs is that it has to be this, uh, you know, proper context. Like, you have to have the right environment. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's dangers to any of these drugs if they're not used correctly. If people try to take them in, a, in just a simply recreational sense, you're going to possibly have a bad trip and hence mm-hmm. other uh, issues can r- arise from that. But if we were to talk sensibly about it, maturely about these drugs, and actually do let people do research, let the scientists mm-hmm. do what they want to do. Experiment, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. And actually find out and let, let's actually open the doors for this conversation to the whole of society instead of constantly being like, uh, you know, scared of them, scared of the very fact that these drugs might be useful uh and you know we should approach it and you know if if the issue is we don't want kids to try it well at the moment uh when they're on the street frankly kids are already able to try it and it's it's been proven that uh prohibition of psychedelic drugs has not helped uh really decrease the Mm -hmm. supply for them and ease of access interesting Well, well speaking of ptsd the other the other show you saw was The Kill Team directed by Dan Krause, which is mm-hmm. a, a documentary, U.S. documentary. Yeah. Um, and uh, talking about soldiers in Afghanistan and, and whistleblowing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, about that film? Oh, yeah. Th- so this was uh, this was my favorite film that I saw. I mean, I only saw these two mm-hmm. documentaries, but I-, I could say that this film is probably one of the best that uh, Vif managed to get because it is the most brutally honest depiction of uh, of troops and their experiences that I've ever seen. And um, essentially, it it's a very personal story because it gets uh, it, it it focuses on this one particular uh, soldier, Adam uh, Winfield. I Winfield, believe. yeah, yes. correct. Um, and his story of going, you know, being with his squad, becoming good friends with these people, but seeing them decay like the whole thing about uh, the paradox of you know troops going to war is that they have to be peacekeepers in Afghanistan but at the same time they're trained to kill and this is what the film explores this this paradoxical duality that's always in conflict and when you're there and you're not really doing that one part of your job that was that you know is drilled into you and uh, is almost made you to think that this is what you're really there for you know to be able to kill to be able to it's almost like you want to be able to use the abilities that you've been harness, uh, you've been training and uh, harnessing this. You've whole been time. wound up. And yeah, now you've you been won't. really wound up, and that's what the soldiers talk about. And you know, you, you, the the viewer is gonna, the audience member may be horrified at some of the things these soldiers say, uh, but they're just being straight up. They're just uh, saying exactly why it is they even thought these things. So, can we really blame the filmmaker and the people? who he got to share their stories, can we blame them for being, in a way, immoral? Or should we applaud them for actually uh, showcasing, Mm -hmm. at least having the guts to showcase? And I I don't want to get too much into detail because I feel like people should watch it. Uh, Maybe you can do research about the whole case, Adam Mm -hmm. Winfield's case, blowing the whistle on his own squad mates, the tensions with with these people who were his best friends. And... What happened? You can look this up beforehand. Personally, it to me it was way more affecting. I think seeing it like as a complete surprise, mm-hmm. seeing it unfold. The narrative of this film is very strong. It's it's a documentary, but it keeps the creative narrative alive, and it doesn't try to sensationalize too much, uh, which is what I think sometimes documentaries mm-hmm. have a tendency to do. It uh, it it has drama but it's very natural given the intense it's a dramatic situation yeah and uh, the parents of adam winfield have a lot uh, have a lot of exposure to and that is probably the most heartbreaking thing mm-hmm. is to see the parents um uh, the parents having to go through this and their hopelessness at what mm-hmm. they cannot do uh to help their own son so 
Absolutely, this, this film kept kept me thinking, and honestly, it, it it was reeling after I I was reeling after it. The impact of it was just phenomenal. So wow. if, if you guys get to the chance to watch this at any other festival, uh, please make sure you do. I, I think it's a very important film that everybody should watch. Well, you can actually check it out. Um, so it's won a bunch of awards. It was a uh, it was Hot Docs official selection. Yep. It won Best Doc at Tribeca um, and Golden Gate Award at San Fran, and then um, it was a selection at AFI Docs. So um, it looks really really good. Um, and let's see, uh, you can check out more for Kill Team Movie at dot com, and it looks like they're going to be at a bunch of film festivals, and, and then I'm sure eventually we'll get wider release. So you can check that out. All oh, my gosh, it's like crazy. It's playing everywhere in October. So um, uh, Rohit, thanks so much for coming on the show yeah, no problem. again, and um, we will hear more from you soon. Um, we are going to take a break, and when we return, uh, we are going to hear a little bit about my experience at Rocky Horror Picture Show, and then we're going to have our special socially anxious guest uh, tell us a little bit about his claim, various claims to infamy, and, uh, you know, maybe a little ukulele. Stay tuned. CITR is proud to sponsor the Vancouver International Film Festival showing of Bill Morrison's film The Great Flood, weaving together compelling archival footage of the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, complemented by an original score by Bill Frissell. That flood led to an exodus of sharecroppers all heading north. The result? Chicago blues, rhythm and blues, and ultimately rock and roll. For showtimes and information, visit vif.org. Discorder Magazine is proud to sponsor the Vancouver International Film Festival's showing of Tito on Ice, directed by Max Anderson and Helena Ahonen. A surreal tale in which graphic novelists cart along a macabre papier-mâché mummy of Marcel Josip Braz Tito, encased in a refrigerator, on a barnstorming tour of the former Yugoslavia. For showtimes and more information, visit vif.org. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, I was raised on this film. I was raised on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So it was very suiting, I think, that uh, I went with my mom last night <laughs> to uh, Fighting Chance Productions version uh, of the Broadway version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, Fighting Chance uh, is a community theater group Um and don't be scared of that. They did an amazing job. Um, and it's playing until the 25th down at the Jericho Arts Center. Um, for those of you who are expecting the exact beats of this infamous show, um, and, and if you haven't heard of the Rocky Horror, Horror Picture Show, first of all, I'm really sorry that you didn't have a cool mom like me. But also, um, you have to look it up. There's no way to describe it. It is a madcap romp through... 1960s slash 1970s aesthetics and rock and sex and it was and you get to see uh two boobs so we're talking like pg-14 and um but no boobs in this uh just lots of really adorable corsets and funky costumes um the story obviously is about frankenfurter he is a sweet transvestite from transsexual transylvania and uh, he's actually one of the standout performances of the event. Um, there were several standout, standout performances, um, some of which were de developed better in the second half. 
Um, but Riff Raff, um, who was originally in the movie played by the writer, Richard O'Brien, um, Frankenfurter, Brad, and Janet were all standout performances for me. Their comedic timing was so funny. Their voices were beautiful. Um, and they just had a lot of fun. They really, really committed to the role. Magenta and um, Columbia, uh, they were also excellent. But here's the issue I had. They need better sound. First of all, the Jericho Art Center is not set up for musicals. It absorbed every little subtlety of sound, and you couldn't hear the chorus at all. 25 people on stage singing in unison, and if you can't hear what they're saying when you're in the third row out of five rows, that's a problem. The miking as well was poor, so I knew they were doing a good job, and when they came by, I could hear those licks being belted, but... Unfortunately, it was really hard to tell sometimes what was uh, what was being sung. I, of course, know the show word for word, but if it was your first time, you might have had a little bit of trouble. So I'm sure they'll be fixing that as time goes on. The other thing is that the Rock Horror Picture Show has some really infamous beats. And like myself, many people are probably more familiar with the film, but it was a stage show to begin with. And it's on Broadway right now. Um... The rockification is actually not from Broadway. They took a little bit in terms of some of the role assignments. For example, Eddie is now a she, and it's a double role with Dr. Evita Von Scott, originally a separate role for a gentleman. Uh, the creature is played by an African-American gentleman, and that is awesome. These are some of the roles that, even though they're iconic, and just because they say that the creature has blonde hair and a tan... Just dye that hair. You're good to go. Um, but unfortunately, I'm not a big fan of the Broadway show as much. I don't like when uh, certain certain lines, certain songs are not my favorite. Um, and the rockification that they did, where instead of having these really sharp kind of direct beats, they had these long trills and these long rock and roll shouts. Um, not my taste. However, Frankenfurter... Um, very, very standout performance, and um, it. I believe that uh, in the second half, it went from playing Tim Curry, who made the role famous, to playing Frankenfurter, and that's where this uh, actor really, really, really shined. Um, it's running until October 25th, uh, starring Seth Little, Will Hopkins, Erica Thompson, Ray Boulay, Jessa Bren, Kelly Oglinson, Hal Weasley Rogers, and Stephanie Davis, um, as well as a really wonderful cast of the chorus. So I would definitely say this is a great time. You can buy a props bag for those of you who have gone to midnight showings um, or whoever know a little bit about the film. You have a bag of props um, that you can throw at certain parts of the movie, and they ask you, don't bring your own. They will provide you with some for a few bucks. And uh, they encourage you to shout and sing and dance. And very few people actually did that, except for one guy who would not shut up. But it's very much a uh, interactive and fun night. So have a few drinks or whatever gets you loose and go in and feel sexy with it. Um, it's a really, really fun night. Um, just go without expectations of it being exactly like the movie. I think that was really the only thing that disappointed me. And that's not even about them. That's about me. So, uh, yeah, really great show. Um, congratulations to Fighting Chance Productions. And they are community theater. So there's a, a lot less money and time. And everyone is usually um, also doing other things. So uh, I think it's always much more impressive. Uh, it's running October till October 26th at the Jericho Art Center on Discovery Street. And you can find more at fightingchanceproductions.ca. Tickets um, are about 20 bucks, and you can also get them on tickets tonight. And uh, I'm going to be doing a uh, I'm going to be doing a Q&A via email with Ryan, the director. So we'll get you some more behind-the-scenes gossip coming up.
dude, I just got your message. What's up? You know that dance we're having in a Fortnite? Oh yeah, I've been blowing up balloons all week. Dude, there's one more thing you gotta do. And if you don't do it, the dance is gonna be awful. Don't forget to invite some girls in yoga pants to the dance. To the dance. Great idea! Don't forget to invite some girls in yoga pants to the dance. To the dance. And that is a track off of Chris Algasan's Songs of a Sad Sack, Volume 1, I'm So Disappointed. And we actually have the man himself who is reminding us you got to invite some girls in yoga pants to the dance here with us. Chris, welcome to the Arts Report. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Um, we also, uh, in the background there, we do have, uh, your young one is here with us today. Do, do you want to say hi? Okay, you can say hi there, my Hi. <laughs> What's your name? Monty. <laughs> Monty. Monty. Nice. We're going to talk to your dad for a bit, but it's really nice to have you here as well. And those animal crackers look amazing. So Trader watch Joe's. out. Oh, classic. So, Chris... What is the Social Anxiety Hour? Well, the Social Anxiety Hour, is, at its heart, it's a, it's a variety show. It's comedy and music, um, all sort of gathered around the theme of, you know, modern anxiety. Um, we all know somebody who's a, a little bit depressed or a little bit anxious. And this show is, uh, I would say, almost like a comic celebration of that. Um, way in which so many of us or our friends uh, happen to live our lives. Now, you have an album here, yep. and uh, you play music uh, during the show. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what ha- what happened first, the theater or the music? Uh, well, it, it actually started with the CD, or it started with a, a theater show called Songs of the Sad Sack, which is a piece that I'd worked on for, for many years. My background is in uh, is really in theater. Uh, that's I was trained as an actor. Uh, and then I started writing plays. And so I started working on the show called Songs of the Sad Sack that to me was going to be about, you know, just a comic look at, at depression, but in a, a very sort of fun way. Did you consider yourself a sad sack at the time? Um, I think it's partly how I... Uh, the self-image that I have probably is mm-hmm. a little uh, <laughs> sad sacky. Um, oh, my wife was was saying, just tell them you're like um, the Eeyore of comedy. <laughs> but uh, as he it was happens, the funniest one. Yes, I know. Uh, he's fantastic. Uh, as it happens, my friend Brad, who's on the show, his name's Brad Dryber. He's been in a bunch of my plays and movies before. Um, people might know him from Battlestar Galactica and some other local shows. Uh, he really identifies with Eeyore. I was at Disneyland, and I was like, i got to get Brad a mug. And I thought, he's kind of grumpy, um, so I'll get him a grumpy mug. And then I saw the Eeyore mug, and I said, no, Brad's an Eeyore. <laughs> and so I gave him the mug, and he said, Eeyore was my favorite character. Uh, and I think Eeyore was my favorite Winnie the Pooh character as well. Uh, so, yeah, Eeyore's hilarious. Eeyore's uh, depressed, but he takes it all in stride. Um so, um, the, again, to go back to where the show comes from, I was working on a show called Songs of the Sad Sack that was going to be, you know, a, a, really a, a cabaret piece, but much more structured than uh, the social anxiety hour has turned out to be. And I just got hung up on it, as, as you often do when you're developing work, and you think, what's another way to, to go at this material? And finally, I decided I had these songs, and then I would put together the CD. And because I put together the CD, I felt, well, I need to start performing these things. And uh, that led to uh, some exciting adventures in the world of performance. Well, it's funny because as a subject matter for music, and, and even less so theater, but as a subject matter for music, there's it's often, even when it's sad things, they're often very dramatic. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the the quiet moments in life get a little missed the things where you, you, you don't want to leave the bath you just yeah. want to stay in the bath 
<laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, which uh, I can hear that playing now. Because, um, <laughs> sooner or later, I'll have to leave this bath. Uh, and of course, with, with the songwriting, I decided that sometimes it's just okay, even though, you know, I love Cole Porter, I love George Gershwin, I love like classically great uh, songwriting. Um, I'm a huge fan of Stephen Sondheim, but I felt like it was okay to uh, to let the songs be repetitive and in that sense much more reflective of a of a way of uh, life you know we're going for the the comedy of it mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah so I just gave myself the license to do that and then you find out that somebody hears the song and then like oh my god you just totally nailed that I never want to leave the bath or you know <laughs> I uh, I always feel disappointed in myself and you know so part of the goal is we give people these anthems that they can carry around with them through their uh, through their daily life I mean it's not a it's not a uh, you know community service or anything like that you know it's it we are going for entertainment um, and um you know, so it's all about funny. It's f- about finding the funny in that experience. But I've always found that the the thing that is the funniest is the most honest expression of the way that people live, and you recognize yourself in that. What draw you, drew you to the like variety hour format? Because like in your description, uh, it, you're evoking the classic variety shows of TV's golden age. Um, what draws you to them is it is that they're not socially anxious or at least didn't seem like it at the time we know now better <laughs> yeah i think um i i think part of that comes from the fact that uh years ago i bought myself uh, or not myself my wife uh two box sets of pretty much the complete judy garland show and if there was ever a person that was <laughs> chronically dealing with anxiety and depression and all that it was judy garland and I thought, wow, there's a real subtext to this show that obviously they're trying to, you know, you try and hide Mm -hmm. behind performance. And one of the things with the social anxiety hour is that we let some of the crack show, we we let, um, you know, we make mistakes. Mistakes are part of the charm of the show. Um, And it just seemed to be like the kind of format, you know, if you think nobody does that on TV anymore, Mm -hmm. the the old uh, sort of Sunday night variety show. And... You know, I grew up watching Carol Burnett. Not that that was exactly a variety show. It was a, a comedy show, though. But it was so much about the mistakes. It was so much about uh, Harvey Corman and Tim Conway laughing. <laughs> and so we really, uh, we really go for that. And um, I've, I've taken to, I've gotten into the Dean Martin show a lot recently. And of course, that was a super duper shaggy show. But there was just, it was just held together. Um, with charisma? With charisma. <laughs> so uh, we try our best um, to uh, emulate uh, a certain amount of that without actually being a retro kind of experience. It's very much a modern um, take on that. Uh, and I, so I draw a lot of inspiration from that. Um, you know, I have a movie called Doppelganger Paul or a film about how much I hate myself uh, that we made a couple years ago. And to me, that was a, a Bob Hope and Crosby movie. Now, if I told you that and you watched the movie, or if you watched the movie and then I, I said, hey, did you see that Bob Hope being Crosby in there? You wouldn't see it at all. Um, but to me, it was very important to uh, the genesis of the idea mm-hmm. and where it came from. And that's the, that's the way it is with the social anxiety hour as well. We do little things that, um, you know, reference that. But, uh, you know, we're also thinking of the, of, uh, the Pee Wee Herman show and uh, Dean Martin show, Judy Garland. And uh, all that kind of great stuff. And then, yeah, things like the Pee Wee Herman show was like, it was almost, it was so over the top as to be almost uncomfortable. Like the Pee Wee Herman show yeah. was uncomfortable to watch in a way, especially now. Uh, yes, it could be, uh, particularly the But so delightful the at the version, same time. Yeah. yeah, and there there is something about Pee Wee and his excitement and um, the, um, you know, and also the people dropping in. Um, <laughs> this is Monty in the background. Yes, um, <laughs> he wants you to sing. We're yeah. gonna, we're actually, we're gonna have him sing in a minute. Um, yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's, that, that is one thing. It's very hard to keep your train of thought when you have a five-year-old next to you. Asking How questions. to what degree uh, <laughs> is the five-year-old mentality shows up on stage? Do you think <laughs> is uh, is it a very structured show, or do you guys improv a lot? Um, we we jump around a bit. Um, it is. 
I actually, you know, because my background is as a writer, it was a new thing for me to actually play around with improvisation on stage, like like live improvisation in mm-hmm. front of an audience. Um, uh, and so I've gotten into that. Uh, David Milchard, who's on our show, uh, and Christina Sicoli, who's his wife, uh, or they're a great sort of comedy couple. Uh, they're very gifted improvisers, and I've learned a lot from them in the, the course of the um, of watching and performing the show and watching them perform and gotten really comfortable with just running towards the the discomfort of improvisation mm-hmm. you know because as a writer my main thing is sitting down there working everything out well you got to keep it yeah. anxious because you were you were talking to me earlier about how there was some anxiety originally and 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 yeah as you perform that that does get lost so you got to keep it scary uh, yes, and that, that is a thing because, you know, this show that's coming up on Wednesday, we're trying to, to you know, kick it up a notch, give it a bit more polish than, than in the past. And one thing that David in particular was like, he was like, we can't lose that sense of the show constantly on the verge of, you know, going off the rails. Mm-hmm. And that is part of the charm of it. Um, you know, I'm a huge Randy Newman fan, and he was a huge influence on uh, on the songs for sure. And I didn't even get comfortable with the notion of performing as a musician until I saw him do a solo concert in Seattle, mm-hmm. about, uh, I think about five or six years ago. And he made mistakes all over the place. Uh, and I thought, wow, that's Randy Newman, Oscar mm-hmm. winner. And, uh, but they became part of the show. And to me, that's just so exciting. And it, it, that's when you know you're actually watching a genuine uh, moment. We're trying to create that sort of connection with our show well it's funny because um one thing i I forgot to mention earlier when i was talking about rocky horror is there was a bunch of mess ups that had nothing to do like a mic stopped working there was like this feedback that went on for a really long time props weren't working and people talk about community theater these guys were so pro when it came like the funniest moments were how they handled this this weirdness that was not built into the show um and uh they had handled it so well to the point where it became a, a stuck in my mind as a feature yeah so it, it turned it from being a mistake into uh, just an aspect of a really entertaining time yeah and that's to me the best concerts too are, are where you know a performer gives a rambling story about what they did while exploring that you know, city. That, that city. And that it day. makes it very personal to that show. So people feel like they see something unique. Yeah. I always enjoy that. And, you know, it's it's fun to go see Bob Dylan, but you never get that from from Bob Dylan. Well, but Bob Dylan doesn't know what he's doing. I saw. I uh, I know some stories, actually. <laughs> uh, I won't talk about them Can you tell us about here. Dylan's story, please? Um, uh, no, because <laughs> my, my wife might not. It just, my wife wasn't involved, but, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> okay. After my the show. son's here. Yeah. After the show. Okay. <laughs> Um, now, the one thing I wanted to, uh, I definitely want to hear, you're going to give us like a little live version of, of something that you, you do socially anxiously. Um, but you were mentioning that you, um, as much as we're talking about like getting more comfortable with performance and stuff, you actually kind of, you kind of jumped right in with these very intimate performances and often, um, it's the really huge rooms and the really, really small rooms that people are working towards, but those small rooms are so intimidating. Uh, yeah, I would say the most uncomfortable show I probably ever gave was for six people in my friend Sarah's apartment oh uh, at about one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Light just streaming in and the playground sounds of a playground nearby. It was very just moody. The, yeah, it was this <laughs> very strange. I, I I couldn't tell you exactly why I did it that way, but. Um, you know, I did my little intimate and awkward tour, and um, I just there was something. There was like this performance art aspect. I don't know if anybody else was picking it up, but to me, I was sort of outside of my own experience watching this. Going, I can't believe this guy is doing this, or I can't believe that I am doing this. And yeah, so it got me over a lot of my performance nerves. Actually, when you're performing for six strangers in a tiny, tiny apartment and everybody's like why did my friend invite me to this <laughs> uh, why did what did i do to him yeah so and, and then of course i was hitting them up to buy a cd afterwards so <laughs> um so are you, you're gonna play a little something for us uh sure i hope this is in tune enough does that sound okay that sounds awesome i'm gonna turn you up a little bit and um okay so this is a newer song I'm not used to playing sitting down. 
this is weird. Hang on. <laughs> Would you like to stand? This, this is part of the this is part of the show. Actually, what's happening is my sweater is hitting it. So bear with me it's one second. It's hot in here too, isn't it? It is toasty. I should have. You should be in the summer. Yeah. And we're all always. You, know, you hot? Are you hot, Monty? Yeah. Um, he has cookies though, so he's happy. Uh, this is a song uh, I wrote when my I knew my dad was coming to the show. I guess it's not exactly why I <laughs> wrote it, but um, university students would certainly, I think, identify with this one. <laughs> Whoa. I have no right to call myself an adult or a grown-up Cause I can't take care of myself the way that an adult should The way an adult should be able to do When my parents were my age They had jobs, a house, and two cars Yet they somehow managed to raise Two cute kids and an ugly one Everyone agrees The ugly one was me They gave up all their dreams So we could follow ours and waited So patiently for us to deliver but we didn't deliver and we haven't delivered we've yet to deliver and we might not deliver on our promise sometimes life gets out of hand not everything goes as we plan like it's all some great big test and if you fail it, your life is a mess And you don't get to do it again You just succeed or fail and then You die, succeed or fail, you'll die No matter how hard you try, you're gonna die Oh, thank you very much, Monty. Um, so, yes, you can hear that. Usually, um, you know, I'm not quite limbered up. I, th I think that wasn't quite in tune. But sometimes it's as in tune as you can get a $20 ukulele to be. I think that's part of the charm, isn't it? Uh, yes, actually, mm -hmm. it, I, there was a bit. I don't do it quite as much anymore because I have a, a, a ukulele tuning app. Whoa, but, um, fancy. I could stretch out tuning the ukulele on stage into about three minutes of just pure um, awkwardness. Um, but yes, like I said, I don't do that quite as much anymore. <laughs> um, so you can find, uh, more of Chris on legstand.com. Excellent gifts. First of all, I'd like to re recommend this basically mostly for the gifts <laughs> or gifs, which I refuse oh, to right. say. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and is that what you're supposed to say? Is that a gif? The creator of the gif. Uh, says that he intended it to be Jeff. Oh. And then most of the world was like, no, we're just going to say Jeff because... Yeah, I can't say Jeff. That's it. It sounds, it sounds peanut buttery yeah. is the issue. Um, what is there anything uh, especially new that this episode, so to speak, uh, is going to have that people can look forward to if they've, if they've seen you before? Uh, yeah, I, there's going to be a few new songs. Uh, we have the return... Uh, we've only done it once before. We've had the social anxiety dancers. So they're going to come out. They're like our version of the solid gold dancers. <laughs> they're going to be there. Uh, and another, um, the biggest addition actually is uh, the Bill Costin trio. It's a, a jazz piano trio. Which is something from your background, right? Jazz piano? Uh, yes. I have a bit of a background in that, mostly as a, as a presenter. But I have studied some jazz piano. I am not as good as Bill Costin, so I'm well, going to fumble through part of the show the way that I usually do on the piano, and um, Bill Costin is going to be there with, uh, it'll be piano, bass, and drums, and I'm really excited. And so um, the show is essentially two sets, but then they're going to play a third uh, just straight uh, jazz set, so people are welcome to hang around at the Anza Club after the show, and it'll be great and enjoy a drink and 
that kind of stuff. So that that's probably the biggest. And uh, I'm hoping there'll be a bit of tap dancing. This has become sort of a running joke on the show <laughs> uh, that we we keep promising tap dancing, but it never uh, materializes. But Although, this time, this time I think there's a good chance. Um, I have worn my tap shoes. I don't really tap, but I have tap shoes, and I have worn them in the show before. But I haven't really, I haven't really tapped. Okay, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna heckle if there's no. No tap. Um, you can are, are, not that I love it when people heckle, but my <laughs> lawyer, I, you know, because I'm in film, so that means you have to have a lawyer. Um, and she came to one of the shows, and she um, she heckled more than anybody. <laughs> she just thought She's it was the like, greatest. Can't thing. sue me. Yep, exactly. You'd need me. Yeah. Um, you can check uh, check more out on legstand.com, um, and then he, you are also on Bandcamp. Yeah. Um, at Chris, uh, El- is it Elgstrand? Uh, Elgstrand. There's any number of ways you can say it. But I grew up saying uh, saying it silent G, like so Elstrand. Okay. But then I got used to just saying Elgstrand because who really cares? I think also if you're online, people will forget the G. So yeah. there's a G in there. Yeah. Um, and you can check out uh, the tracks we've been listening to d- today on Bandcamp. Um, and you're on Facebook and all that great stuff. Um, yeah, the CD's on iTunes as well, but it's better to get it from Bandcamp. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. And and Thank Monty, you. Monty, did you have a good time? Do you have anything to say before we go? What do you want to say? That kid's this kid is a comic genius. I love you. <laughs> I love you too, Monty. <laughs> I um, love um, thanks so much for. Uh, to Chris for joining us today and thank you to Jonathan and Rohit uh, for their reviews and uh, thank you to the cast uh, and crew of Rocky Horror Picture Show. I had a great time so thanks for having me and I definitely for all you uh, nerds out there, um, go and nerd out at that place. Um, feel sexy. Um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, get you to tune in next week for the Arts Report Wednesdays at 5. And Sarah Lapsley is going to be there, um, be the host that uh, next week. And she is going to be talking uh, to the Frank Theatre Company about uh, All In, which is the new Jen Derbyshire um, Frank Theatre Company production. And we actually talked to Jen last year last year about uh turkey in the woods which i really really enjoyed at the queer arts festival so um that's going to be really good talking about this new uh production and much much more uh i think what we'll do is i'm going to leave you with a sketch um a part of a sketch why do i do this um that chris has posted on his website and you can listen to the rest of later um you've been listening to the arts report on citr 101.9 coming up we have ubc arts on air with animal lion and then sam squatch's hideaway thanks for listening peace out Um, one sec here. Is there anything I can do to, to help? Or? You can fill in this awkward space. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to start this and then, then there'll be music. Yeah. listening chris is using his tummy as percussion for why do i do this on citr 101.9 why do i do that to myself i really hate this i really hate that i really I must want to be punished. I 
I've ever had. Welcome to another UBC Arts on Air, a program profiling remarkable faculty, students, and staff in the Faculty of Arts. And I'm your host, 